This is the Art of Dental Finance and Management with Art Wiederman. Brought to you by Decisions in Dentistry and the Academy of Dental CPAs. Whether it's taxes, investing, or planning wisely, Art is your guide to make your dental practice as profitable as possible. Here's your host, Dental CPA, Art Wiederman. And hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Art of Dental Finance and Management with Art Wiederman, CPA. I am Art Wiederman. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, I'm a dental-specific CPA. My practice um, for 36 years has been located in Southern California in the city of Tustin. Uh, I am now a uh, a proud member of Ide Bailey, which is a fantastic CPA firm uh, with uh, offices all over the Western United States, where their Southern Southern California office. I am a uh, director in their dental division, is the title I have been given, and that's just fine with me. They can call me anything they would like to call me. And uh, today, I have a real treat for you guys, um, as I've told you over. This this is a podcast. I believe we're number eighty four or eighty five today. Um, one of you know one of the great things about working in this profession is is you make friends, and there are and, and you get to the points like you have a you have a specialist if you're a general dentist that you just like you just say this is my go to person this is my go to endodontist this is my go to uh, periodontist this is my go to orthodontist well. You know, we we work with dentists, uh, with with um, with attorneys, and uh, we work with other professionals. And um, my guest today, who's my dear friend, Dr. Lee Maddox, is just somebody that if I've got a problem and I call him, he's got the answer and he knows what to do. And those are the types of people you want to be working with. And Lee is, uh, you'll hear a little bit about his background, but we're going to talk about the uh, the atmosphere right now for um, transitioning of practices in the middle of a uh, of a COVID nineteen pandemic. We're recording this uh, podcast uh, in late July of twenty twenty, so uh, there's a lot of things that have changed. So we're going to get to Lee in a moment. I want to give you some information first. Um, if you want to get a hold of me in my office in Tustin, you can call me directly at six five seven. Two seven nine three two four three. You can email me at artweederman at gmail.com. If you want to see copies of our old podcasts, um, you can go on to our website, which is www.idebailey, which is spelled E I D E B A I L L Y.com. Uh, and all of our podcasts are there. Uh, you can also go on to our great partner, Decisions and Dentistry's website. The, some of the best clinical content you're ever going to see in, in dentistry and a who's who on their advisory board. Great continuing education um, uh, products uh, that you can take advantage of uh, during this very challenging time. Uh, go to www.decisionsanddentistry.com. And if you want a 30-minute consultation, complimentary consultation with a member of the Academy of Dental CPAs, uh, just mark the box on the website and we'll get you to uh, the member. And if you're looking for a uh, dental-specific CPA anywhere in the United States, if we're looking in Southern California, that would be me and my team. Uh, but anywhere else in the United States is the Academy of Dental CPAs, which is 24 CPA firms across the United States. And we're approaching uh, working with close to 10,000 dentists. So uh, we're very closely connected with the ADA and we do a lot of things with them. And 
in my opinion, we're the premier dental CPA organization in the country. So I do want to give you one update today before I get to Dr. Maddox and we start talking about transitions. Um, there's been uh, a lot of controversy and talk about the um, H, um, uh, HHS uh, provider uh, program, uh, the provider fund. Uh, it was $175 billion created by the CARES Act. And um, it, it basically represents 2% of your gross revenues. And I talked about this on the podcast, I think, last week. So one of the issues that has come up with this is something called balanced billing. And what happened with the balanced billing is that if you look at the terms and conditions, if you take this money, and again, if you have a million-dollar practice, it's $20,000 and probably 14000 after taxes. So it's not life-changing money, but it would be nice to have. It is taxable. But the, this balanced billing issue basically said that if I have a fee-for-service practice and I, I see either pres, a presumptively uh, infected COVID-19 patient or someone who's actually got COVID-19, then basically uh, if, if I'm a fee-for-service practice but they have uh, insurance with an insurance company, I have to accept their, uh, you know, basically in-network rates, which was absolutely, you know, blowing this whole thing up, people not taking it, people saying it's not fair, people saying we don't understand it. I did want to let you know that today, when we were recording, which is the 23rd of July, uh, HHS came out with a uh, frequently asked question to this and basically said that you are considered to be seeing someone presumptively if the COVID-19 diagnosis is in your medical chart. Um, the fact of the matter is, is that dentists who presumptively know that a patient has or could have COVID-19 is probably not coming into their dental office. So you want to go on to www.hhs.org um, uh, and look under the frequently asked questions, read the terms and conditions you have until August 3rd. Uh, in order to uh, take this aid, which again is not life-changing money, but it is nice. But do read the terms and conditions. All right, so let's get to my my dear friend, Dr. Lee Maddox. I've met Lee. Oh my gosh, thirty years ago, probably when you know he and I had dark hair, and Lee was a Lee was an endodontist. And my big joke with Lee is that he couldn't figure out what he wanted to be when he grew up. Lee was a, a one of the premier endodontists in Orange County here in Southern California. Uh, Lee went to, uh, you know, then decided to go and uh, become an, uh, well, then Lee, I'll let him tell you a story. You know, there was a disability involved and he's been a lawyer and a broker and he is one of the absolute smartest people I know. Uh, and don't let this get to your head, Dr. Maddox, but welcome to the Art of Dental Finance and Management. Thank you, Art. So, <laughs> hello to everyone. So, I'm going to just give you a little a brief background on who I am and what I've done over the years. And then Art threw me a few questions last night, so we're just going to talk impromptu about what I see on a daily basis in my in my law practice. And I have probably around 5,000 law clients I manage somewhere between 60 and 80 transactions a month, uh, all, all spectrum between partnership formation, corporation formation, office lease negotiations, 
uh, asset purchase agreements, um, associate contracts. Uh, I, I asked my assistant yesterday how many active transactions I'm working on at this moment, and she said I had 78 active transactions, eight of which had gone dark uh, temporarily. So I'm working on 70 transactions right now, which gives me a little bit of input, a little bit of exposure to what's going on. Uh, it, it's not all telling, but it's a little snapshot about what's going on in the Southern California and Northern California area. So a little background on me. I went to USC undergrad in 1983. I graduated. I was an, uh, an, uh, a biology major. I went to USC dental school in 1987. Um, I went right out of school to, um, to the endo program at USC in 1989. While I was in the program, I worked as an associate, so I know what it's like to be an associate. Um, I purchased the practice right out of school in 1989, so I understand practice ownership. I started becoming disabled in 1990, uh, 1992, and uh, at that point, I hired an associate, so I flipped, uh, I flipped from being an associate to hiring an associate, and then I ended up selling half of my practice. We formed a relationship. Uh, you can form a partnership or a corporation. We did something called a group solo, which was a space-shared relationship. We ended up building out a new office in 1993, DeNovo, so we did a brand out, build out. Um, and and um, then I uh, opened a second office. Um, yeah, I got that, 1993. So then I I started with this disability. I, I fought it pretty hard, but ended up having hand surgery in 1994. The original diagnosis was I had carpal tunnel syndrome. So I had a hand surgery. Then in, uh, And then in 1995, I got my board certification. And then I had a shoulder surgery in 1995. I built another office out in 1996. And then I had a second shoulder surgery in 1996. And at the ripe old age of 35 in 1996, I was 100% disabled. You were done. And I took my practice that I bought from 270000 a year in revenue to about $2.3 million a year in revenue. So we were successful in the marketplace. We just I didn't have the physical physicality to stay into the job. So it ended up being a genetic issue. I, I, I should say a hereditary issue. Every member of my family just about it has some kind of a disconnect between the brain and the hand where we get a limited strength and, and, and altered feelings in our hand. So my hand feels like it's asleep 90% of the time. So the take-home message here, if you have disability insurance, keep it. If you don't have disability insurance, get disability insurance. If you're having an issue with disability insurance, I think Art did a presentation with uh, Randy Curry, who's a good disability attorney that can help you review your policies. But the, the critical thing is we insure everybody in our life, so we want to make sure we insure ourselves. We spend a lot of money on our education. We spend a lot of time to get where we're at, and we need to protect ourselves. So at the ripe old age of 35, I stopped working in the dental profession in the clinical aspect of dentistry, and I got involved with a, a dental manufacturer called Tycom Dental, and I took an ownership interest in that, and I worked with them from 1996 to 1997, electric for them nationally and internationally. We made nickel-titanium rotary instruments, did a lot of great things there um, for with nickel-titanium that, that, that are currently being used in the marketplace. Uh, the company was was fairly dynamic. Unfortunately, we, we had some issues with some patent problems, and uh, we ended up getting bought out by another large company. And I discontinued working for them in 1997, went back to law school, uh, and and law school was the most fun I ever had. I really enjoyed hanging around. I was 37 years old when I went back. I got to hang around with 23 and 24-year-olds. It was super fun. It was fun to go to school and not worry about being in the top of the class. It was fun to hang out with young kids. I did about 25, 10, 40 
tax returns. Uh, what are they called? Tax ten forty easy. What are they called? Those easy yeah, ones. Yeah, ten forty. I didn't know that. I would have hired you to help me do yeah. tax returns, dude. I would. Yeah, yeah. I would have. I gave dating advice. We I coached baseball teams with the students. <laughs> we we had students over weekly for dinner. Hey, this is and a it, full service podcast. We talk about everything. So if you've any it, dating advice on here, and <laughs> it was it was incredible. I recommend if anybody's thinking about going back to school later in life to do it. It's super fun. Uh, I came out of school. I did a little criminal defense work. I realized that some people should go to jail, you know, in contrast to what's going on in society today. <laughs> so I needed to be on the plaintiff side. And then I switched over to patent work. I worked for a large company called uh, Konomi Martin, Olson & Bear. And I primarily worked on, on uh, noble pharma, dental, plant, uh, dental implant stuff. So I did that for a while. I hated it. Uh, I went to work with a suit and tie. got there at 6, left at 11 o'clock at night with a suit and tie. And I was the dumbest guy in the building. We had Everybody had triple PhDs. It was, it was an interesting place to work, but not for me. So I uh, jumped out of that and went into the transactional dental attorney business in 2001. And I got into this healthcare space. So it made sense for me as a dentist to work primarily with dentists, but I also work with optometrists, veterinarians, medical doctors. So I pretty much cover the whole space. I don't do a lot of chiropractic work. Uh, I did that until about 2010. And in 2010, I decided I wanted to see what the other side of the fence looked like. So I started a brokerage business called Maddox Practice Group. And uh, we did very well. We were primarily in Southern California, and then we also... Uh, operated out of Northern California. And in 2013, this small company called Henry Shine bought us out. I've heard of involved them. In, yeah, big company. Um, and so I ended up managing the practice transition business for them in seven, 17 states, had a whole bunch of agents working for me. And basically in that role, you know, everything from the non-disclosures to the purchase and sale agreement, um, preparation to office lease negotiations, just to managing the team. That was a full, a full, a full-time job with a lot of travel. So after five years, I said thank you, and I retired from the brokerage business. So in 2018, I went back to the full-time practice of law, and I've been doing that ever since. And as I've told everybody, you know, I, you have your go-to people. I have my go-to people, and uh, Dr. Maddox. Uh, I was, <laughs> I was, I was, I was sad when he left being a lawyer, because there went one of my lawyers. There are other wonderful lawyers who I've had on this podcast. Uh, but now he's back, which is nice. And um, you know, he's got all this experience. And being that you didn't have a whole lot going on, you also just became a grandpa. Yeah. So, okay. So, how's that married, working out for you? It's great. I've been, I've been married 33 years. I got four children, 31 to 26, and uh, two girls, two boys. And we just had our first grandchild, Eleanor Marie Reinhardt. So, she's three weeks old, going to be four weeks on Sunday. And, uh, it's what they. It's true what they say. It's great to be. It's 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 the reward for having children. So we're pretty excited about that. <laughs> no, no, it's my revenge because when they have children, oh, I am gonna so get even with these people. I swear to God, Nathan and Forrest, you better be worried. No, I'm just so kidding. Funny. Before we go on, I just want to say I go over my resume uh, to really just let you know that I have I have vast experience in in what we're talking about today. And at the same time, I like to caution you that even though I do this every day and I have all this experience, I don't know all the answers. And I think that's a critical thing for everybody listening is that if you're going to go through a practice transition of any sort, you need to get people involved with you that understand the transaction from dental CPA, a dental consultant, a dental attorney, a dental uh, lender, and and get advice from some qualified people. It's, I think it's 
it's silly to take advice from somebody who sold one practice or bought one practice. They have some knowledge. It's limited knowledge. But it's really important to understand that what Art said in the beginning is he calls me all the time. I call him all the time because people are raising issues that they're difficult issues. And, and you don't you can't have all the answers. And so you have to have a peer support group that you can communicate with to get these questions answered. So if you're going through any kind of transition, yeah, it's great to listen to these podcasts. Get a good team around you that knows, you know, something about the industry and and make sure you take limited advice from those that have limited information. Selling one practice, owning two practices. They know something they're 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 good to listen to, but they shouldn't be the driving mentor in the relationship, you know, of your of your transaction. No, okay, you're, Art, go ahead. And you're absolutely no, you're absolutely right, Lee. And so I want to start the discussion about, you know, uh, there is a we're four months into the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, I'm a dental practice broker. You and I have had lengthy, lengthy conversations. I because I call I called Lee up and I said, you know, Lee what is this going to look like? So let's say I get uh, a seller. He's got a million dollar practice netting 35%. Uh, you know, in, in Southern California valuations are, I don't know, 80 to 90%, depending on the practice. If it's a good practice, it could be lower like anything else. We're not going to get into a lot about valuation, but so if a seller comes, you says, I'm thinking about selling Dr. Maddox. What should I be thinking about? What what's going on right now? What are we seeing in the marketplace? And then I can comment on it too. Okay, not to be too much of an attorney, but let me just give you a little disclaimer. Oh, everything okay. everything we're going to talk about today is my opinion, and it's just my opinion. It's what I see on a daily basis. So you're going to get a little bit of it's it's all about perspective. Uh, you do most of the people on the phone are doing dentistry on a daily basis, or maybe they're a consultant. I'm a lawyer. As a lawyer, I see the good and the bad. And, 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 and so I'm going to give you my opinion. Whether that fits your narrative or not is, 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 you know, that's not something I can control. If I say something that's offensive, I apologize in advance. If I say something that you don't like, okay, I'm sorry about that. I, I've, I've done a few of these Zoom lectures, and every once in a while I'll get a comment back, and somebody will be highly offended that they just – didn't believe what I had to say, and, and that's really okay. This is information. Take it as you 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 like, use it as you like, and understand that you know you're in the process of gathering information, gather as much information as you can, and make a cogent decision, and uh, and hopefully you'll find this helpful. So okay, so yeah. getting back to what Art asked me, what's going on in the marketplace? And I think everybody has has equally participated in this. We had this sh- shutdown, and here's probably the most potentially offensive thing I'm going to say today. Um, <laughs> I am disappointed in the way that organized dentistry approached the handling of uh, the shutdown. I think that the ADA and all of the individual uh, state organizations and the local organizations should have fought for dentistry. I'm disappointed that they didn't come out and say that oral health is important to biologic health. I'm disappointed that they didn't say that universal precautions have properly protected the patients and that we're doing a better job protecting the patients than anywhere. And the patients are safer in the dental office than they are out on the street. And they're actually safer in the dental office than they are in the hospital because we don't get nosocomial infections in, in the dental practice. So so I, I tend to be an optimist, but on that particular issue, I just have to say it's it's unfortunate that we didn't get the support from, from our organized dentistry. I hope that they will support us going forward. If there's a potential shutdown, we know we're all 
looking at what's going on in the world and the pending and the pending second wave and the impact of the second wave, and and just have to realize that that um, you know I think we're in a political year. Uh, you know, we have uh, 144,000 deaths in the U.S. after testing 48 million people. Our our death rate somewhere between two and four percent, depending on which state you looked at. Compared to most of the countries around the world, they're running seven to ten to twelve percent, depending on where the morbidity rate, depending on where you look, and you can look up your own articles on it. But the U.S. is doing really pretty well on a morbidity rate. We do seem to have a higher number of cases, predominantly between the ages of 18 and 48. So the ages of 14 and 8 are getting these COVID-19. Many of those patients are asymptomatic. It's also interesting on a political issue to hear that you know they're making all this noise about hospital beds being filled. If you look it up in the flu season, the worst flu season we had a couple of years ago, 137,000 hospital beds were occupied for flu seasons. At the height of this COVID-19, we didn't have more than 37,000 beds occupied in the U.S. with COVID-19 bed patients. So it's a big number, but it's not a huge number compared to the flu uh, as far as bed uh, hospital bed use. But the reason I raise that issue is this is causing stress in the marketplace. And everybody is concerned that, that there's going to be the second wave and the second wave is going to be a practice to shut down. And so what we're finding is doctors, selling doctors, are panicking. So we're getting a lot of practices going on the market for sale. And, and some of the doctors are, have just, I think, Art, you remember back in the 2010 or was it 2008 um, when we had the market crash, there were a lot of doctors that said, oh, I was going to retire. And they were going to retire. And then they postponed retirement three, four, five years because you know their 401ks were were, were wiped out. They became 201ks. Yeah, 401 201ks. Yeah. <laughs> so so this was a little bit different. This was this was more catastrophic because we had lots of different issues going on. We had practices being closed. We had people losing their jobs. We have the dental lenders not lending. So you know it, it, this was a this was a, a total. This is completely different than what we've had in 2008. So what we have now is we have a lot of sellers on the marketplace. They're saying. Should I sell my practices now? So I've, I've always said if you're you two things you should decide if you're mentally ready or financially ready. And art's the best person in the world to tell you if you're financially ready. Financially ready means if you take all your if you sell your practice and you get no revenue from the practice and you take all that money and you put it in a bank account where you lock it up and you don't use it, do you have enough money to pay your bills? And if and if you have enough money to pay your bills, how much money is left over after you pay all your expenses? And then you can basically decide if you can retire or not. And the money you take out of your pension, or where you can say it's where you get fifth, you can only take four percent a year out without eating well, the principal. Yeah, that's that's the rule of thumb. Four, you know, four to five percent, four four and a half percent. It really depends on how you live and and all this stuff. But yeah, you you do have to look at, you know, if you, you, you're, you know, you get tired. I mean, you, you don't want to do this anymore. And then you come back and you say, wait, this is not what I signed up for. I'm going to retire. I can do this. And if you can, that's great, which is a great reason to save money. Uh, but, but yeah, so, so the sellers out there, we got more sellers. Uh, it, it's been a seller's market in many areas of the country because like, we do this nationwide, but it's been a seller's market for a while, hasn't it? Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely been a seller's market. We graduate about 5,800 students a year and we do about 13 to 1400 transactions a year. So it's, it's always been a seller's market in the right area. The rural areas have been a little bit, I've always right. been a little bit different, but it's, it's been a seller's market. So I was saying earlier, I used to ask him, are you financially ready or mentally ready? 
the big component with mentally ready now, we, we have doctors that are mentally wanting to practice dentistry still, but they're scared. So one of the things that we continu- continuously hear is that if you're over 70 and you're a white male and you have comorbidity, then you have a higher higher risk of getting a pretty serious case of COVID-19. And so we're, I think Art and I are seeing is that the doctors are coming to us and and they're they've either opened or they're most of them, most everybody's open now. Um, um, a few haven't. Ninety seven ninety seven percent, according to the ADA, are now open. Yeah, so ninety seven percent are open, but they're scared, and and so we're seeing people that have have real fear that that you know that that they're going to get sick from practicing dentistry, even though they're putting HIPAA filters in and they're wearing all kinds of different devices to try to protect themselves, and and so they're. They're putting their practices on the market, and there are some predatory buyers out there and some predatory advisors out there that are saying, hey, why don't you just make a really low offer on this practice and see if you can steal it? And 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 the basis for this, and, and, and Art and I are not having a long conversation about practice valuation, but the basis for their position is, is nobody how, knows how to value practices today. And maybe, maybe Art does, but you know, people are selling their practice today on pre-COVID-19 numbers. And, and so you're looking at tax returns from 17, 18, and 19. And, and Art said there's, there, you know, there is a, a range of what people are typically looking at, whether it's sold on EBITDA or whether it's sold on a percentage of sellers' discretionary earnings or whether it's sold on a percentage of gross revenue. There have always been some formulas out there that people have looked at. And 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 those those formulas are all based on 2019 numbers, and yet we had a significant shutdown in March, April, and May, and people coming back in June, July. And while a lot of the practices have come back strong, uh, it's still causing a concern. In fact, Art and I were on the BFA meeting, and Jody Nicola said that their internal polling of 30,000 dentists was there were 65%, the dentists were back to 65% of yeah. the COVID-19 yep. numbers. And the ADA put together some number and the combined two was around it's, 67%. It's, so I think Art and I are seeing it different. I thought most of my clients are back at 110%. Uh, yeah, and, most of my clients are in the in the 75 plus percent range. I think what you and I talked about, Lee, and you're the one that actually brought this up is, well, you know, the, the practices that do, you know, Medicare, Medi-Cal, welfare dentistry, they're not going to have a lot of change because it's a government-funded program. Uh, the ones that are the high-end fee-for-service, uh, maybe fee-for-service Delta Premier, or maybe fee-for-service with not with you know no insurance uh, in network, they're going to be in pretty good shape. I've got a practice right now that we're selling in Orange County that uh, I mean, he was averaging you know eighty, ninety thousand a month. He's done one hundred thirty thousand the first two months, and patients are banging his door down to get in. So. Uh, it, it's the ones in the middle that you you were the one that brought this up to me, right? Like the the ones that have the PPOs and maybe are dealing with people that are, you know, not as economically well off and are on unemployment. Now the unemployment's going to run out at the end of the month, right? Isn't that what we talked about? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so there's 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 a I, whether whether they're back to sixty seven percent or seventy five percent or a hundred percent. Patients are coming back to the dental office, and we knew they would, right? So they came back to the dental office, and what we saw was a lot of backed-up work that needed to be done. I mean, a, a, a large-volume practice doing two hygiene visits a day, five days, two hygienists working five days a week over three months. That's like six or 700 missed appointments. So we're seeing a, a lot of practices that are catching up on hygiene, and, and, then, and that will generate new work with hygiene checks. We'll see more operative and restorative work needs to be done. So 
we are seeing the practices they're busy. Our concern is that our how long is the business going to last? And as Art just mentioned, if the unemployment goes, they don't renew it. And I think the Republicans have a plan now whether they get it done before the Senate you know, goes away or not. I don't know. They're in a trillion dollars. The Democrats are to three trillion dollars. Seems like a pretty big gap to me. But there'll be some kind of a stopgap measure that I think is probably going to push the unemployment benefits a little bit longer, but it's something like 70 percent of pre pre uh, pre uh, termination or of um, um, salary, whatever they were before they went out, where they got before they got put on furlough. So it won't be the six hundred dollars, but it'll be something. But anyway, the point the point is that, as Art said, the higher end practices, people are everybody knows insurance only pays a small amount of money, thousand to fifteen hundred dollars. So the larger practices with the more aesthetic cases, those people are still paying for the cases. Um, and the and the group that you know we're working the mom and pops that are working with the PPO insurances that that are that are making you know, fifty to one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. You know, they're stressed. They still have student loans to pay. They still have health insurance to pay. Maybe their jobs got you know terminated. Maybe they're getting the six hundred dollars extra unemployment benefit, but coming in and paying the copayment on a dental procedure is maybe not in the card. So, so we're certainly seeing some issues here. So, what what does this mean for sellers, anyways? Let's get back to the question. What what does this mean for sellers? So, if you're thinking about selling your practice and we don't know how to truly value practices, what is it? What is the impact? You put your practice on the market now and you try to sell your practice at pre-COVID-19 numbers. So Art and everybody else who's doing practice valuations, they're going to put in some disclaimer in their valuation that this is the value of your business. Disclaimer, looking at 2019 numbers and before, and we don't know how to factor in this last you know three months shutdown. And so if you put your practice on the market now, you have a chance of getting a price close to what your valuation is with the 2019 pre-COVID numbers. If you're in the higher end range of the better practices, the lower end range of the practices, you're going to probably have a much different, more difficult time. The middle five, six, seven hundred thousand dollar a year practices, they're going to sell pretty well because that's the sweet spot. And uh, but there might be some discounting. The problem is is if you don't pull the trigger now and you wait till January of next year, Art will tell you that we're going to have a 2020 tax return, and that 2020 tax return is going to show lower revenues. And when we have that lower revenue, we're going to be looking at tax returns 18, 19, and 20, and your practice value could potentially be much less than it is right now, where we just say we're paying, we're doing it, we're selling the practice based on pre-COVID-19 numbers, you know, knowing that the practice was shut down for three months, but we expected to come back. Whereas later we're saying, well, it didn't really come back. Here are our actual numbers. Go ahead. Art. Well, what I'm what I'm hoping is going to happen, and this is something that uh, was on the uh, the webinar that you and I were on yesterday, is because that question, if you remember, Lee came up as like, a, what are you going to do in 2021 when you look at 2020 numbers? And and the answer was was well, you know, we're going to look at what happened. Uh, you know, before, and we're gonna, you know, and we're gonna look at what happened when you opened up, and if it's looking really good, uh, we're probably gonna loan. That that's what he said, but we don't know what the the banks don't. Lee, the banks don't know what the banks are gonna do, right? And I think that's the critical part is that as a group, we're optimistic because unlike other industries, we do it ourselves, right? We are hands-on people. We work the practices. We do the actual dentistry. So we are actively involved in the process. And, and so we know we can make it work. So we're very optimistic that we can make it work. 
and the buyers are hungry. The buyers that worked for corporate dentistry and in multi in multiple offices are looking for a little bit more stabi- stability because they got they got furloughed from the larger groups. Oh, yeah. And they'd oh, rather yeah. have their they'd rather have their own practice now and control their own timing and when they work and when they don't work. Because some of you know you worked through COVID nineteen shutdowns. You did emergency treatment. So, uh, but the the point is. The the dental lenders have changed, and every day it's changing. And this is this is when I say that sellers right now are the most frustrated I've ever seen them, yep. because because the transactions are not linear anymore. It's a dynamic event because the lenders are changing their roles because the lenders are very concerned. When we deal with the lenders, there's three groups of people. We have the salespeople that want to do the loan. We have the underwriters that want to make sure the numbers can support the loan. And then we have the person sitting back in the corner of the room who's the risk manager. And the risk manager has got his hand on his chin analyzing, saying, does this fit our program? Does it not fit our program? And if it doesn't fit our program, we're not doing the loan. And so the risk managers right now are very, very concerned. Here's the point. Pre-COVID-19, B of A was lending 100% financing on a, a good majority of the deals. I don't know what percentage, but a large percentage of their deals, they were doing 100% financing. Per Jody Nicola, yesterday, yep. he said they're back in the market, they're going to lend 75%. 75%, yep. So what that means is that the, the lender thinks there's a higher risk of default, and because there's a higher risk of default and our collateral is fairly weak, they don't want to have as much skin in the game. They want the seller to have skin in the game. So they'll end up to 75%. And if we can meet the lending requirements, which is debt coverage ratio, $1.25 or $1.2 of uh, profit or uh, of net income against buyer liability, if there's $1.2 of profit, uh, if, if there's debt coverage of 1.20 and they lend 75%, they will allow us to do a promissory note up to whatever value we can get as long as it doesn't throw off the debt coverage ratio of 1.2. So what they're basically saying is we want the sellers to be involved. And, right. And, and, and the values are going to – now, remember, folks, and I've said this for years, Lee, is that you know, what a bank agrees to lend is not what the value of the practice is. But in the buyer's mind, it is. Well, you know, this bank won't lend more than, you know, 800,000. That's all your practice. Well, no, that's not what it's worth. It's what that underwriter uh, and and his supervisor or her supervisor say that this is worth. But that's what the the buyers have in their heads. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. And and what I've been seeing as a broker here, just looking at some of the transactions that we're working on, and we've got some that are probably going to close this year, is that, you know, buyers are coming back with this, okay, so we'll give you 650000 but we want to do a holdback, and it's based on, uh, you know, three times pie minus uh, how many times SpongeBob has cheeseburgers. I mean, they, they come up with all these, these, these formulas, right? Is that what you've been saying? Okay, so so I, I want to go back to one thing he said. You said art, and then we'll pick up all the different strategies and how we get the transaction completed. First is the debt coverage ratio calculation. There's only one part of the equation that the seller controls, and that's the net income. The other part of the equation, the below the line, below the you know the denominator, is controlled by the buyer and the buyer's debt. And with the average student coming out with close to three hundred thousand dollars of debt service, you know, a, a student loan uh, without any other lifestyle issues. The, the fraction gets messed up if the buyer has a, a really high uh, uh, you know uh, high number there. So 
So Art is right. The value that the that the lender says, the amount the lender says they're going to loan has nothing to do with the value of the business. The the value of the business can the amount of the loan can change with different buyers. For example, if someone comes in that has a has almost no debt and there's strong net, you'll get to the 1.20 ratio, no problem. If the buyer has the same practice and, and we bring a buyer that has a lot of debt, then we might fail. We won't hit the 1.20. That doesn't mean the practice isn't worth the million dollars. It just means it's not, it doesn't meet the cash flow requirements for this particular buyer. So I think that's important that Art brought that up. So how do we get a deal done in this yeah, environment? That's, I, guess, I guess that's the question. So you know what what happened when this all when the deals that were in place when this transaction when this whole COVID nineteen went down, many of the transactions just stopped. So so the the buyers just said I'm I'm out I'm not completing the transactions and they walked away. Some of the buyers said we're going to continue with the practice and we're going to keep the same pricing because it's the right fit. It's the practice in the right neighborhood. It's got the right number of operatories. I like the feng shui. I like the pictures, whatever it is, it's the right fit. It's what I've been waiting for. I'm not going to let this opportunity go for $30,000, $50,000. I'm going to work there for 30 years. It means nothing to me, $50,000 over 30 years. I'm going to buy this practice. And then there's a group of buyers that said, you know what? I'm going to be a predatory buyer. I'm going to come in and I'm going to try to steal it. I'm going to try to get a couple hundred thousand dollars off and, and just kind of really grind the price. And 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 so so somewhere in there, there's, there's some different dynamics. In in the in the group where the doctor says I'm going to keep the price, there 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 may be a nuance to get to the finish line. And so the nuance is, if the bank isn't going to lend 100% of the money, how do we finance the practice? If the bank says I'm not going to lend 100% of the money, so it 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 requires either the seller carry a note, a promissory note, or we might have to do what we call a holdback. Or the third option is as I mentioned already, is maybe somebody just cuts the price down and we pay less. So the practice on the market for valued at a million dollars, the buyer says he's going to pay a million dollars, COVID-19 happens. Now they come back and say, oh, I'll pay you 800. Or the buyer comes back and says, you know what, I'm going to give you $800,000 and I'll give you $200,000 more if certain criteria are reached. We will call that a holdback assuming if they get the full million dollars or there's some way to support it. So a holdback will typically be tied to some kind of performance of the practice and some kind of requirement that the doctor works. So if you're working with a large DSO who's acquiring the practice, they almost always want the doctor to work back for one to two years, and they almost always want to have some kind of production or collection criteria over a period of time. The problem that we're having is that holdbacks with DSOs work. And they work because they have private equity money. So they're funding the transactions 100% cash. So they come in and say, I'm going to give you the million dollars. Here it is. We're going to let you keep 800 of it now. We're going to put $200,000 in escrow. And if you hit 100% of revenue the next three years and you work 150 days the next three years each, we're going to give you that other $200,000. That's an easy transaction for me. It's easy for art. And we don't have a lender. The problem we're having now is people are wanting to craft holdback language and holdback transactions with lenders that don't know how to do it or don't want to do it. Now, if we go back 10 years, 12 years ago, we had a bank that liked holdbacks, but they would take they would make the they'd make the seller take out a CD. I don't know if you remember this, Art. They had to take out a CD. Yeah, I remember. And the, 
and the bank held the CD for the $200,000, which was completely frustrating. My seller had no control of the CD. We never saw if they got the money. In fact, you would know if they got the money. I don't know. I did the transaction and I was out of it. Yeah, but now, were. right now, we're dealing with banks and they're, they're, they're good lenders, they're good people, but they don't, they're concerned. Like, wait a minute, you, you want us to fund 100% of the transaction and you want to leave $200,000 in escrow? Well, is the escrow bonded? What if the escrow is out of business? How do we yeah. protect the $200,000? I mean, we bring up a ton of issues, and, and the lenders are just not comfortable with it. But is it better to do a holdback, or is it better to get less money? I mean, obviously, you want to get as much money as we can. And if we can't get the bank to do the holdback, allow the holdback model, and we don't want to take a price reduction, the only option we have is to take a promissory note and, carry, and, and, and be a bank. Which, which you have told me over and over again is basically if you sell your practice for a million dollars and you get 800 of cash and a $200,000 promissory note, and you're the one that taught me this years ago, tell your client that they're selling their practice for 800000 because they may never see that money because uh, it's an unsecured note. Let's take a break for one second. I want you, you know, Lee, as you can tell, Lee is a shy young man and uh, he doesn't talk much, but he is one of the most knowledgeable people in this industry. I can guarantee you that. And he is one of my truly go-to people. Um, I was thrilled when he came at a brokerage and went back into the law. Um, so I will, um, I'd like Lee, if you would take a second and give out your contact information, um, to everybody. So, and it will also be on the show notes on I'd Bailey's website, but Lee, how, uh, if someone wants to, uh, work with you, uh, how does that, uh, how can they get a hold of you? I right, just send an email to Lee at MaddoxHealthCareLaw.com. Lee at Maddox, M-A-D-D-O-X healthcarelaw.com. A telephone number two, 949-675-1515 or 415-361-4045. So we talked about sellers and, and I guess the conclusion on the sellers, Lee, is that they just have to be prepared for a negotiation and for all kinds of fun stuff that could happen as opposed to, you know, when we used to list practices before this and they were really good practices, we would get multiple offers and they'd be bid up and it would be really fun for the broker and the seller, but it's, it's a completely different animal. So sellers, you need to be patient. I know you want to get out, but we're in the middle of a pandemic. So let's let's go to the buyer side now, Lee. All right, so you get a young buyer. They're three, four years out of school. They've been working at a you know clinic or a, a big box place, and now they're ready and they want to buy and they, they're, they're sick of it. So so buyer comes to you and says, I want to buy practice. What do we need to be looking at? What, what should they be careful about right now? Well, again, I think the buyers on the other side have to be looking at the practice valuations and saying, is this practice worth what they're saying it's worth? And, and, and this is always coming back to this idea of what are we really buying when we buy a dental practice? So what we buy when we buy a dental practice is we buy intangible assets, things we can touch and feel, like the equipment, and we buy intangible assets, that, 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 that fuzzy stuff that you can't see and touch. And an intangible asset that we're buying is goodwill. The IRS definition of goodwill is, is the expectation of future business. I define goodwill as a momentum of the practice. What is the driver in this practice that keeps the momentum? So when I'm looking at dental practices, I think when a buyer looks at dental practice, you should be looking at trends. So if your trend is the numbers were higher in 17, higher in 18, higher in 19, then 
if 20 is down because of COVID-19, I'm not so stressed because the trend in the practice, the momentum in the practice is there. So what's driving the momentum? The hygienist, the calling the patients, not making them wait in the room, not hurting them, the high quality dentistry, exceptional you know, cleanliness, whatever the driver is, good marketing, uh, whatever you think is the nuance that makes your practice successful, if that's communicated to the buyer and it supports the trend, then that goodwill, that momentum will continue. And I think the buyer should be focusing on that. If the reverse is, is there, where the 17 is higher, 18 is lower, 19 is lower, and then 20 is even lower, then I think you have to be more concerned as a buyer because we have a practice that's declining. And again, we have to look at why is the momentum changed? Why are we getting less patients per month? You know what 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 has changed in the practice? Did we drop an insurance plan? Did we did we did we change hygienist? Did we change associate dentist? Did we raise our prices? Did we change our location? Did we demand payment when we didn't demand payment? What are the nuances of the practice that makes the practice successful? And this is a short conversation with the sellers. I think sellers are very proud of their practices, and you ask them and say, "What is what is special about your practice?" It's not the dental chair. It's not, it's not the five operatories. It's not the waiting room. What is making patients show up here year after year? Why do we have two, three, and four generations of families showing up to this practice? And what can I do as a buyer to keep that momentum going? And I think that that's where the focus needs to be. I'm not a practice consultant, and you can go get advice from practice consultants, but I see people drill down on the numbers and they and they get so worried about thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars, they miss the big picture. The big picture is how do I capture the momentum? How do I sustain that momentum? Because I'm buying this practice for 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years. So in this environment, my advice to buyers, if you find what you like, buy it. Pay the seller what he wants and transfer the goodwill. Now the buyers are saying, why would I do that if I don't know what the value is? Well, the answer is if you if you if you if you don't find what you want, you don't have to buy it. No one's, no one's, you know, gonna gonna force you to do it. And I'm thinking about something. The sellers, I was gonna say earlier, if you don't sell it this year, you probably gotta hold your practice for a couple of years so we can see 2021 tax returns and 2022 tax returns, and we can see that you recovered from the COVID-19 closure and that your practice is back up to the normal levels, and we're getting the number of patients. Uh, per month that we used to get and all the momentum uh, nuances are in place. So if you're a buyer and you're buying the practice, yeah, you're obviously going to be concerned about Delta Dental and whether they're premier provider or not a premier Glad provider. Glad you brought that up. So. And, and, and you're going to be, I, I think you look at ADA code production and collection reports and provider reports, you know, a typical dental practice will have a third of revenue done by hygiene, but look at the, look at the production and collection reports. If the, if the dentist in 2017 was doing, you know, 50% of his business in, in restorative. And in 2019, he's got a huge spike in revenue and he's doing 80% in restorative. There could be a problem there. There may not be a lot of dentistry to, to do if the, all that restorative work is being done. So from the buyers, I think that you have to analyze A to Z, get the production and collection reports, look at the zip code analysis report, the practice summary reports, and, and really get a feel for, and AR reports and credit balance reports, and really get a feel for why is this practice successful and how am I going to keep it successful? Now, now I, I'm gonna... I, I, I just had a transaction where the transaction closed and the, and the, and the, I'm going to come back to Delta Dental, but the, 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 
doctor who bought the practice couldn't become a Delta Premier provider. So she changed the compensation models for all the hygienists that had been there 20 plus years. Oh, oh, so, so, so all the hygienists, the hygienists have left and the patients are bleeding. They're, they're, the people are leaving the office. So, so this person, instead of understanding what I said was, I'm buying goodwill, I'm buying momentum, I'm going to capture that momentum, I'm going to do what the seller did, I'm going to slowly move the practice over to the way I operated over a year or two, at least one to two or three to four you know, hygiene appointments of the patients, so one to two years of getting to know the patients, then making some nuanced changes. Why not buy that momentum where you're doing a million, a million one, a million two, versus go in and just shock the system with putting in new policies? I understand you're paying a lot of money, but when you shock the system, you run that risk. So, okay, yep. so let's talk about Delta. You want to talk about Delta? Let's talk well, about. there's a couple of things I want to talk about because we're going to run out of time here any any minute. Uh, but um, so, so as we all know, uh, Delta is the 8,000-pound gorilla, and that Delta had uh, – you know, four or five years ago, I had them into my office with several people and we talked to them. And at that point, there were 8,800 in California, 8,800 premier only providers. And Delta basically made the rule that said, okay, if you transfer your practice, uh, you have to accept the PPO. And 99% of the patients who have Delta insurance are on the PPO because businesses can't sell a premier package, although they would love to because it's a very profitable thing for them. But nobody will buy it. So, so what happens is, is they end up taking a hit. And so, uh, you know, now I'm gonna I'm gonna open Pandora's box with you as you reach through the computer and rip my lungs out because you did this one time when we were lecturing together at ADA. So we talked to doctors about doing specialty procedures, Mr. Endodontist. I know you have an opinion on that. So talk about Delta. Talk about how ways people can make up for that if they. Uh, you know, if they, I know you're not a consultant, but what you're, you know, what we're telling doctors and then, you know, doing specialty work. And, and again, I'm talking to a, uh, a recovering specialist. So talk a little bit about all that. Don't look, get me started on the American Association of Endodontists. That would be a long conversation. I, no, 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 don't, no, no, Lee, Lee, this is not a 12 hour podcast. Come on, man. Come on. So, okay. So this is what buyers hear is when you buy a practice, you're not going to be a Delta premier provider. That's a, the, the the true statement is when you when you submit to become a Delta provider, you can become a Delta Premier and a Delta PPO provider at the same time. So it's I think it's called Delta Premier Plus. If I have the name wrong, I apologize. But when you get the application, there's an there's an addendum to it, and that addendum is for Delta Premier addendum provider. And so what this means is is that after the transaction closes, you can bill Delta Premier patients to Premier fees, and you can bill the PPO patients PPO fees. So backing up, what do buyers need to look at? The When the buyers are buying practices, the question is always how many Delta Premier patients there are. So that's a fair question, and they can get that information for you. Then the question is how many of those patients are Premier and how many of those patients are PPO? That's a good question. The third question is, does the selling doctor charge the same fee for Premier and PPO? In other words, if the selling doctor works on a PPO patient and charges the 100% fee, does that patient pay the copayment to pay the same fee as a Delta Premier patient? So those are the three important questions. If the seller isn't 
charging patients that are PPO patients the premier fee, there's no problem. So if the seller has, let's say the seller's doing a million dollars, they probably have somewhere around 500 uh, Delta patients, uh, 400 to 500 Delta patients, they'll probably have 30 to 60 premier patients. The rest are all PPOs. So if they're charging the PPO patients the premier fee, then they have essentially for all purposes of 500 premier patients. If they're charging the PPO patients the PPO fee, then it's a non-issue for the buyer because when the buyer signs up for Delta, there'll be a premier provider and they can pr- charge premier fees to the premier patients and there'll be a PPO provider and they'll charge the PPO fee to the PPO patients. Where, where it gets concerning for the buyers is when the seller is charging the premier fee to the PPO patient, which is legal when you're a premier provider. So that's where the drop in revenue is, is that when a buyer buys the practice, that those PPO patients, they're going to have, they're going to receive less dollars per procedure. And that's a fairly tough calculation. People say it's somewhere between, and I don't, what you say, 20 to 30% drop yeah. per procedure. I don't know what you say, but yeah, it's it, basically the, the way the numbers work. If you have, a, I've done this, if you have a million dollar practice, and the and the um, and it's twenty five percent of the patients are Delta, and you just assume that virtually all of them are PPO patients. Uh, basically, if you take uh, you know, and you're going to go from ninety percent of UCR to sixty percent. That's what I usually use is a thirty percent drop. So if you take thirty percent drop on two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, you're 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 losing eight. Yeah, I, I've talked to some of the consultants. They use eight percent of the revenues. Eight percent of the revenues is what you can expect to lose. Um, if you are a, uh, if it's a premier only office and now you are going to be, have to go in network and you don't have to go in network, you can choose to go out of network. Um, that's a whole nother podcast, which we won't get into today, but, um, but that, that's about the math Lee. So, you know, and, and the sellers and the brokers, and I want to, before we leave today, cause we're getting close to the end of our time, I want to talk about brokers and how to deal with brokers and, um, you know, what they do. And, you know, it's like there's good players and there's bad players in every business, but, 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 you know, this is something, this is a main issue, but, but sellers are not discounting practices because they're Delta premier. They, they never have. Right. Right. And so I'm going to go back to your 8%. So if, if that in fact is the rule, 8%, if that's the suggestion, then the question is, are we overpaying if we pay the price the buy the seller's asking for? And, and if we are, what can we do about it? If the seller doesn't want to reduce the price, you end up buying it or you don't buy it. Right. And if you do buy it, how do you make up the difference? And this is where the question Art teed up for me is, you know, what do you do? And I, I think this is, you know, what's commonly said to buyers out there is take a look at what work is being referred out and do that work. So I have a little bit of issue with that being a specialist. Really? I, I, I advise people to do what they can do. <laughs> I advise people to do what they can do competently. So if you're if if the if the sellers are referring out upper second molar uh, endos and you don't feel confident doing upper second molar endos, then why risk losing a patient in three generations of the family by working on something that you're not confident and, with? And getting sued. <laughs> and getting sued. Or if you're doing an impacted lower WSI. And, and then you get some nerve paralysis or if you're placing implants and you, whether you use a surgical stent or don't use a surgical stent, or maybe you're using a cone beam or maybe you're not using a cone beam. I mean, do what you're comfortable with. And, and so if, and, and, and by the way, a lot of you, you train dentists are amazing and you've got 
extra training in GPR, or you've worked in some corporate offices and you've really stretched it. You do a lot more than you know what the average dentist did when they got out of school 30 years ago. So maybe you have a higher level of confidence to do these procedures. But the key is if you feel confident with it and you look at it and you see that you know some of these procedures you can do and you can do them safely, then you can make it up that way. But what I, what I see as the simple issue is just work more days. And I, don't, I certainly don't know the percentage anymore. I used to have a slide on this from the ADA. But most of the dentists in this country work four days a week. That's about so, right. So when you're young and hungry, you can pick up the 8%, or maybe not, you being the math guy, Art. But I think yeah. you can pick up the drop in revenue by working five days a week. So work five days a week, work hard. Uh, we all, That's how we all did it. We worked hard, worked long hours, and, and get in there and, and, and make it up. And see, um, here's the other thing, Lee, that I see <laughs> is that a lot of these doctors who are in their 60s and 70s that are selling – we ask, well, what kind of marketing do you do? Well, we don't do anything. We're getting eight or nine new patients a month, and it's all word of mouth. Well, there's this thing called social media. There's this thing called Google. Uh, there's all the, the the marketing you do. I mean, just just how many senior doctors that I deal with, they just don't ask their patients for referrals. I mean, how simple is that? So there's a lot of opportunity out there. Um, I think, Art, one of the things that – and I used to do a, a whole bunch of practice valuations – um, in my prior job. And, and one of the things that I could pick up pretty easily is when I saw a drop in revenue, I could tell you within a month or two when the selling doctor stopped doing hygiene checks. So it's silly, but most hygiene, pro- most hygiene departments are broken. They, they, you know, if you have, if you have 1500 patients, you should have 3000 hygiene appointments a year. But if you have one hygienist working eight hours a day, you're doing about twelve to fourteen hundred hygiene appointments. Right. So you're doing fifty percent of what you should be doing. So you know a simple a simple thing is is it, to look at these practices when you're you ask the doctor if they do if they do hygiene check and how strong is their hygiene department. So some of these practices, yeah, they're focused on big cases and they're going and they're Delta Premier, but their hygiene department could be run significantly better. And that's where the dental consultant comes in and they analyze the practice and they say, you know what, the hygiene could be better. You could have, you know, an extra 800 hygiene appointments a year, you know, and if you do the hygiene checks, that's going to drive more revenue. So I think really the critical issue is, is that as we practice over the years, we get tired and there's a point where we just say hygiene checks, forget it. And when, the, when you stop doing the hygiene checks, practice revenues flatline are starting to decline. And that's, that's why I say, point. look, that's why I say looking at trends are, are, are really important. When you look at when you start looking at at uh, the ADA code uh, production code reports, you can see that hygiene staying the same year after year after year after year after year. How is that possible? How can hygiene be the same for 15 years if you're putting on 15, 20, 25 new patients a month every single year? Because so, a bunch of them are walking out the back door. Yeah, so I, I think there's always room for growth and getting a good practice consultant in there and you know who they are can come in and analyze and help them out. So, so, so the last thing I want to talk to you about today, Dr. Max, and, and again, you and I have been friends for 30 years. I have such great respect for you and we could talk for days uh, about all kinds of stuff and we have. Um, uh, what about my dentist who wants to um, take over the world and wants to own? I mean, I, get, I swear I get calls about you know once every three months. All right. So what's your goal? I want to own 50 practices in the next five years. Okay, sure. So talk to doctors who are entrepreneurial and they want to own multiple practices. What advice do you give them as far as, you know, how did, I mean, again, it's a whole nother podcast, but what are you seeing? Well, I think that what's interesting is in the, in the last 
five to eight years, there's been a big push for multi-practices. So you have to ask yourself, who's pushing this the most? And the answer is the dental supply companies. The large dental supply companies want more DSOs with more ownership of practices. If you're in a dental supply business, would you rather have a client that owns 300 offices and you do a million dollars a year revenue in, or would you rather have 300 offices where you're doing a thousand dollars a year revenue in? So what we what happened over the last five or six years is we've all been manipulated, and we've been manipulated by these these large dental supply groups, and into believing that multiple practice is the way to go, and and so there's a lot of lecturing going on out there. And, and there's groups of people that do this, and they claim very high returns on dollars. So 10 to 15% revenue on a practice. Right now, Art will tell you that when you operate a practice as a sole proprietor, you're going to have somewhere, depending how you're operating the practice, between 60 and 75% overhead, 65 to 70 being in the normal range. So you're making yep. 30 to 35 cents on every dollar that you produce. If you run the practice absentee, and you have to have an associate. So when you pay that associate, it drops your revenue down. So I think a, 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 a normal doctor that has multiple practices with associates is going to run somewhere between 5 and 10% of revenue. And I'm thinking 8 is the number. So if you own a practice that's doing a million dollars a year, you're going to make $80,000 owning the practice. So if you want to make $800,000 a year, you have to have 10 practices. The problem is, is how do you get the money? And this was a problem before pre-COVID-19. So what happens is, is that there are a few lenders that want to do multi-practice operations. In fact, even a question was asked to B of A yesterday, are you back in the multi-practice business? And the answer is yes and no. Yes, we, <laughs> but we don't want to go to 30, 40. Maybe we'll do five to 10, but we got to really look at it. And there's, a, there's a lot of ifs. So the problem is, is if you don't get the money, what do you do to differentiate yourself from everybody else in the community? And 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 the these these really successful groups like Pacific Dental and some of the larger groups they spend a lot of money in advertising they have a lot of revenue um, because of that and and it and it and they have a lot of backup money from PE firms and I, I can't talk specifically about PE any other specific companies including Pacific Dental but what I find happens with my clients they have one practice and they're very successful they go to two they're very successful they go to three and they can't quite make it. So at 2.5, 2.6, one doctor has a tough time running three practices because we're starting to get to the point where we're driving multiple associates and multiple hygienists, and it's difficult to keep everybody happy. I think the critical thing that makes the DSOs work, and I'm not the experts on DSO, is you have to get to a point where you can get a corporate office with a corporate with a with a with a with a good corporate team where you have where you have. Um, you know, some some quality control, some some CEO, some CFO, some you know, some some insurance people where you're answering the phones, we have internal billing, and, and that corporate office could cost you a million or two million dollars. And so it's very hard to get there. And so what Steve Thorne did was amazing. What some of these other companies has done is amazing. And I think yeah. we'd all we'd all would like to reproduce it, but we can't drink the Kool-Aid and think that we're gonna open practices and have 15% to turn on revenue. And and because it's just not that easy to do, and I'm unfortunately I I'm always wanting to buy practices. I'm I, you know I can't get it out of my system. Once a dentist, always a dentist. You've been talking about it. So I, I'm 
I'm always looking at, at practices thinking I want to buy a practice and I go in and I analyze the number and then I analyze the numbers with an associate in there and the practice doesn't make as much money. People can do it and it does work out. You just have to be really committed to it. And, you know, I talked to a guy the other day that has 11 practices and they're doing well. It's not that it's it's not that it's impossible, just a really good vision. And, and I will tell you that if you're going to build something to sell, make it like McDonald's. And what that means is make it a very consistent operation so that if you walk into one and you walk into the next one, they all look and feel the same because the people that come in and buy these practices that are going to pay the high multipliers want to see that. That's what the business community likes. And that's what you want to sell. Yeah, well, so that's, that's I, a quick answer. So folks, I, I will tell you, as you can tell, um, like I say, Dr. Maddox is a shy, shy man. He doesn't talk a lot, but he's a wealth of, I say that affectionately, he is one of the smartest guys I know. And if I have a problem with a transaction or something, and Lee, have I not done this many times, I say, you know, Lee, I'm a smart guy, but you are most days smarter than I. And he's usually got the answer. So one more time, Lee, give out your contact information, the email and the phone number, please. Uh, yes, uh, Lee at MaddoxHealthCareLaw.com and 949-675-1515. And thank you very much. Hopefully I didn't offend anybody today. We covered a lot of topics really quickly. Uh, if you have some questions, send me uh, send me an email and I'll try to answer it or contact my administrative assistant, Jill, and she'll schedule a short call. And, and if Dr. Maddox has offended anybody, just email me at artweederman at gmail.com and we'll we'll have a conversation. No, I'm just kidding. Um, if you want to get a hold of me at my office in Tustin, uh, I'm at uh, 657-279-3243. Uh, my email at uh, is artweederman at gmail.com. And now also at my new, in my new life, it's a Wiederman at Eid Bailey, E-I-D-E-B-A-I-L-L-Y.com. Go to our website, eidbailey.com and look at all the podcasts and our uh, dental uh, pages. We have tons of stuff. Some of it I've written um, uh, uh, and just a lot of really, really good stuff. And, and you know, Eid Bailey is a great firm because they have, Virtually any industry that you are in, if you have a spouse or a cousin or something, you know, we can handle it now. It's wonderful. Um, go to our Decisions in Dentistry Partners webpage, www.decisionsindentistry.com, um, and uh, subscribe to the magazine. Uh, if you want a 30-minute complimentary consultation with me or one of the other members of the ADCPA, uh, mark the box on the front page. And if you're looking for a dental-specific CPA anywhere in the United States, if you want Southern California, that would be me and my team. And if you're looking anywhere else, go to www.adcpa.org. Dr. Lee Maddox, I value your friendship very, very much. It's always fun to talk to you. And thank you for taking the time to come on today. Thank you, Art. I do as well. Appreciate it. Uh, Thank you. Uh, Bye. And everyone, that is it for this edition of the Art of Dental Finance and Management with Art Wiederman. Please be safe. And remember my five-word mantra for this time in our lives, this difficult time, failure is not an option. Do what it takes. You've worked way too hard and accomplished way too much to let a public health crisis uh, get in the way of your long-term success. Take care, everyone. See you next time. Bye-bye.